Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Fidelity Director of Quantitative Market Strategy Denise Chisholm is back on the show today to share her insights on the current market movers and the sectors she's keeping an eye on. Denise discusses her views on the recent statements by Fed Chair Jerome Powell at the Jackson Hole Economic Symposium and shares some potential implications she can see this messaging having on the markets. She highlights that the level of interest rates matters less than the reasons behind rate changes. She believes that if higher rates are driven by economic growth, this can be generally positive for the equity market. Denise and host Pamela Ritchie also discuss the complexities of inflation, highlighting that different inflation metrics can have varying impacts on the economy and the markets. Denise suggests that small and mid-cap stocks may offer opportunities given their relative valuation and potential for growth. She also dismisses concerns about high government debt levels, stressing that the type of debt and its impact on the market matter more than the absolute debt level. Denise also provides insights into the relationship between inflation, wages, and the labor market, highlighting the importance of real wage growth for the market's performance and touches on the resilience of the banking sector in the face of rising interest rates, noting that consumer strength plays a crucial role in supporting banks. This podcast was recorded on August 28, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So we were all, it was sort of that grab your popcorn, watch what was going to be said on Friday. We heard what Jerome Powell said. Some will say he was sort of cautiously hawkish and so on. If rates go up a little further, is that disastrous? Tell us your thoughts. I think the answer is no. And it's the why behind rates that matters more than the overall level. Look, I get it. Where we came from as investors was the entire problem with the market in 2022 was higher rates and higher inflation. So now how could it possibly be that higher rates are not the same problem? And when you look back in history, you'll actually find that more often than not, higher rates are not a problem to the equity market, but it's the why behind it that's really the issue. To the extent that those higher rates are a function of growth, which is kind of what Jerome Powell was saying in his testimony, well, I think growth is a little bit better than we thought, to the extent that those higher rates are a function of that, by and large, throughout the course of history, the equity market has had not, not only had no problem with it, but that tends to be the sweet spot for equity investors. So, so higher, I mean, it's a response. Obviously, the rates are, are a response to higher inflation. Do we, do we take it sort of the same thing? Higher inflation, again, goes to the growth story? In some ways. And I will say that, like, I think that the inflation story is a little more complicated than the interest rate story, right? Interest rates can broadly go up or down. We do talk about the level as it relates to R star. Inflation rates, which one would you like to talk about? Would you like to talk about headline? Would you like to talk about core? Would you like to talk about the core services X housing? Would you like to talk about just housing inflation? There's a big range of outcomes with that inflation number in terms of what that might mean to growth, what that might mean to markets, and what that might mean to the Fed. 
And that's why I think that it was very clear when inflation levels were top quartile, and by top quartile, I mean above four and a half. And I usually use overall CPI because that's what's most of an impact to the U.S. consumer and has the biggest impact on corporate profit margins. So when you're above four and a half percent and accelerating, that's a bad setup. That's where we were in 2022. Once you're out of that top quartile, even if you're accelerating, it's kind of like an it depends. There's just this wide range of acceptable inflation for both growth, the Fed, and the overall market. So again, like I, I think that we might be focusing on something as investors that's not the critical driver. That's almost like this strange corollary. And you can really tease out the corollary when you look at the historical math. One of the pieces that I just did recently that'll be up on my LinkedIn for anybody who's interested in the charts. We was that Mark? We get it first. Yeah, Mark, get yes, it. you do get it first. It has not been released yet. Only internally, I should say, released. If you're a fidelity internal person, then it can be not as a customer yet. But what the interesting part about it is I get the question a lot that this seems like a really bad setup for stocks, meaning multiples are high, stocks are expensive, and rates are going up. Again, we just sort of been through this. We know that that is a potential headwind. And when you look historically, it's true that higher multiples on average lead to just lower than average returns. And by average returns, I mean 8 to 9%. And then the returns are like, you know, let's call it 5 to 6 but still, stocks broadly advanced through that high multiple for reasons that we've talked about before. But the interesting part is the twist. If you think that that high multiple in conjunction with higher rates is a bad thing, it actually works the exact opposite, meaning that if multiples are starting high and rates are going up, you're better than average returns in the equity market. And it's all a function of this intrinsic corollary behind what is usually the situation at the time. Usually the situation is the times that growth has been pretty poor. Yes, earnings have declined. GDI is contracting. GDP had gotten close to a contraction at 0.8% two quarters ago, right? So check that historical box is yes. And because of that, because earnings growth had already contracted, stocks are far from normalized, meaning that those multiples aren't really representing what you think that they're designed to represent. And at the same time, those higher rates are suggestive of the fact that you are coming out of that contraction. And that that's a good thing because that's a reflection of growth. When you look at the situation historically, you see the exact pattern we're in. And none of it looks anomalous to me. In some ways, it looks exactly what you should be seeing in the early stages of recovery, which is usually the early stages of a bull market. So multiples being high, the stock market is expensive. This is, I mean, this is what we're hearing, right? It's expensive. We've seen that. But that's okay, generally speaking, when rates are also high. I mean, it's, just, it's hard to get that in. It is okay as long as it is at the trough of growth. Provided you have growth, the market more likely than not looks through that current high multiple. And think of it this way, like you're wrong on the out year for earnings. Right. I think the out year for earnings with an expectation is like maybe 10 percent in a typical earnings recovery after earnings growth has contracted. Hello, we've contracted. It's usually 20 to 30 percent. I'm not saying that that will happen, but that's usually what you see in an earnings recovery. Another way is you could sort of back into it and say, if we are expecting a 10% earnings recovery, we are discounting the probability of that recovery, which is a typical earnings recovery of 20 to 30%, being about 50, you know, 35 to 50%. So to me, when I look at what the base case is for investors, I don't see the same optimism that people 
look at when they, you know, when they look at sort of, you know, either the Picall ratio or anything else, when I look at the expectations relative to what we see historically, I don't see everybody all in in terms of optimism, which means that if the base case is that we truly do recover, then it's likely that it's not actually priced in. It's not actually priced in. What one of the things that Powell managed, it sounds like that's what he was trying to do, was to communicate that cuts are off the table. And for now, anyway, and, and the market seems to believe that if anything, there's a rate rise rather than a cut coming around the corner. Again, you've told us in the past, a cut is obviously going to be in reaction to something that's not going well in the economy. Take us through that. Did he successfully do that? Was that, was that one of the main features that, that you would pull out of his remarks? That was a feature, although I would say that he's been pushing back on the cut thesis for quite some time. And in some ways, I think that that was a big component of the bear narrative. If we view as investors cuts as accommodation to the equity market, then the fact that he is not going to cut would be perceived as a bad thing. And the way you can figure out whether or not that that's usually true is by looking through history and saying, when the Fed cuts, is that historically a bad thing or a good thing? The more aggressive the cut, the more likely it is that growth is problematic and the worse it is for the equity markets. And I won't say always, because during sort of the anomalous situation where the Fed, you know, in 2018 had raised rates um, higher than they needed to based on the fact that inflation actually didn't reaccelerate, then you had room to cut. Though, again, it goes back to the why. To the extent that you are cutting because you hiked too much and inflation did not reaccelerate or is not like well in advance of 2%, then that doesn't have to be a bad thing. But to the extent that the, you are cutting because the economy is contracting and you are now behind the curve, that's not the thing you want to be rooting for as an equity market investor. So I think that, you know, by and large, I think that that bearish narrative, I think each time he presents it, I do hear people sort of glub onto it and say, well, see, that if they won't cut, then this is not going to give us the all clear signal for the equity market. And I think you only have to look at the last year's worth of data to find that really what higher rates have been is a reduction in the recession risk. And that reduction in the recession risk, meaning, hey, we don't need cuts because we don't have a recession yet, has been a very good thing for the equity market. There's a narrative right now circulating. We're now three days after the Jackson Hole symposium, or at least the remarks. And so there seems to be this, well, there might be a cut in order to grow. What, what do you think of that? The cut in order to grow. I don't know. Well, we've been growing. I mean, when you look at GDP, we accelerated from 0.8%, to, I think 1.5% to the expectation of 2%. Like you wouldn't call that like gangbusters in terms of real GDP growth, but we seem to be headed largely in the right direction. So it's hard for me to say that we need a cut to get to growth. And when I look again, when I look historically, usually it works the exact opposite, meaning that the more you grow, the more likely it is that interest rates are modestly higher. And I do think it's it's a modest thing. I think the timing is really key because you can grow into higher rates over time, provided that nominal income grows. And I think that that's in some ways my takeaway from, from Jackson Hole overall was kind of same as it ever was. Okay. He's sort of doing this every other we'll consider it when, and it's like a hawkish pause or a dovish hike, depending on the data. So we're still in the same trajectory of a massive unwind of the pace of monetary you know, uh, tightness. Um, and the pace is really the important function for the market. Because if you go at a very strong click, 
75 basis points a time, there will never be a situation, maybe not never, but where nominal incomes can keep up with that. But if you're talking about every other time, 25 basis points, maybe, we're not sure, depending on the data, this is usually something that more or less doesn't need to be a problem for future growth. I do think that one of the things that people were wary of or nervous about or maybe even the whisper around Jackson Hole was that he was going to say something, Jerome Powell was going to say something very prescriptive on our star and say that there was a structural change in the economy, which has led to higher than average rates to bring inflation under control. And I do think that there was some expectation by the bears that there would be this acknowledgement of, hey, growth has not slowed. So clearly we need much higher rates than we even thought of so therefore, our star is now higher. And he, and he kind so, of sidestepped that question. Yeah, he really, he was like, I don't really know what it is or how you get there. We're just going to shelve that. That's pretty interesting, actually, that that might have been the whisper. I want to just, we'll come back to, to everything that you're saying, but I just for a moment want to ask your view on back to the relative story of, of, of the United States, you know, sort of the investment, American exceptionalism in this case. Jackson Hole is also about other central bankers. It's also about the tightrope that they are walking. And it's also about the debt that they are all carrying, and obviously China in the background of, of what's going on there. So there may be problems. The US may be full of debt. Canada is too. Europe is too. There doesn't seem to be anywhere that is going to really tackle it from what from what we gather here. Is that is that about right? That does seem about right. And I understand the angst as citizens of these governments and as a person. Um, but at the same time, you have to be careful as an investor to not translate that angst into what will ultimately happen to our economies to what will happen if you invest in the equity market. Because again, those two things are not translatable. I mean, partly because if you parse out which debt is predictive and which debt isn't, government debt is the least predictive. Consumer debt, banking debt, financial debt, corporate debt, these are all very predictive things for the stock market. And in that case, the U.S. is actually a lot better than most of the other regions of the world. And I'll specifically pick on China, where it's not just government debt that is, has been built over the last decade, but a substantial amount of consumer debt, corporate debt, and financial debt, uh, which is not the situation we're currently in. So the type of debt actually matters a lot, at least historically, to the market. And as it relates to the X factor of government debt, which is tough to analyze, because really, historically, in the US, it's just gone up over time. Um, and then, you know, the one situation in Europe where debts were reduced, that austerity actually led to negative consequences for the equity market. So I think it's a bit of a tricky situation. But what you can say is, at least historically, the more debt you have, the more likely you are, at least, to end up in a currency crisis. But those currency crises usually happen when you are relatively worse off than your other competitors. This is a situation where all investable currencies, and this is China really included, have built debt substantially over the past decade. So again, that relative story is very tricky to say that this is going to be a problem specifically for the U.S. and specifically end up in a currency crisis, which will be specifically bad for our market. So I think the translation of all of this situation as it relates to debt to the equity market is not a very clean story. 
And I don't want to say that it won't matter to the equity market ever, but right now what I'm saying is that the relative story mutes it and the dynamic within the debt we have mutes it even further. And do you do you ultimately sort of see that translating into one way or the other, a fiscal story? I mean, it, it, there is sort of that piece of the inflation story that, that is the fiscal spending side of things. Governments get all strung up and, you know, lots of discussions on the on the political level of how to do that, how to not do that. But again, if there's a relative story of, of the United States perhaps being in a better place relatively, can they spend more? I mean, this sort of goes to the fiscal story, I guess. Yeah, I think that the answer is no. I mean, you bring up an interesting point because the papers at Jackson Hole are usually more interesting than Jackson Hole itself in terms of what the, the chairman actually presents. And there were a lot of academic papers on fiscal debt and if that's going to be an issue in terms of monetary policy. And I'll take an alternative view on it. I think that no, we are not going to be able to spend when we have the next crisis. And I don't think that many governments or most governments are going to be in the exact same situation. And that's why the fact that our rates are now higher and that the Fed has been more aggressive to me is actually a net positive for the U.S. Because if you have higher than average rates, it means that you can cut rates to be more accommodative and to stimulate growth. So I think the worst position that you could be in is, you know, something like I think that Europe is, you know, um, ambling towards, which is you didn't raise rates enough to get inflation all the way back under control. And now you're in a situation where growth isn't strong enough for you to be able to either maintain or hike rates any higher. And now you're in the situation where whenever that next crisis is, there will be one. I just don't know when. Which do you have working for you? And you really won't have fiscal policy being able to for you. And you're going to have much less effective monetary policy working for you, where I think that the U.S. is in the opposite situation whenever that next crisis hits. If the market is expensive, and maybe this goes to which parts of the market, equity market, are expensive, the question is, is it a good time to move into and look into small and mid-cap stocks? I think so. Now, look, that's been wrong. And it's been wrong over the last, I'd say, year. And mega cap stocks have really led the market advance up until recently. And small caps haven't really provided much more protection as we've seen the market correct. And I say this in the loosest correction of about 5%. To me, I think that as much as mega cap trends and mega cap leadership does tend to happen in bull markets more often than not. So it doesn't give me pause about an imbalanced market, but I do see the opportunity in small and mid caps. And the reason is mathematically two. One is that that is where the fear is most palpable, meaning valuation spreads are the widest. And if you're worried about the fact that either we're not in an economic recovery, we're not going to have an economic recovery that's robust, or you know there are some people that are being, or there are some companies that are actually being left in the dust, that's the area where all that fear is. So to the extent that we do play out in, a, I'm going to say, a garden variety earnings recovery and maybe a garden variety GDP recovery as well, I think that there's the most upside because that's where the most fear is. Situation number two, mathematically, is we are now, you know, small and mid caps have derated relative to mega caps for the better part of a decade. We haven't really been this cheap in small and mid caps since the bubble. And look, it doesn't mean that, you know, valuation has to be predictive right this second. But when you look historically, the cheaper that small and mid caps are relative to large caps, the more likely it is they are to outperform. 
platform. So to me, you could definitely end up in a situation where you have multiple tailwinds of small and mid caps relative to large caps because earnings growth, where the fear was most palpable, actually recovers and you get that double tailwind of valuation expansion along. So yes, I do see opportunities within the small and mid cap space. I wouldn't argue that you'd have to sell all your, your mega caps and, and that's going to be a problem area of the market. And I would actually focus on the cyclical oriented sectors within those small and mid caps, specifically technology, consumer discretionary and industrials. Materials? No. Yes. No, I think materials are like the number four. Okay. Um, Yes, the number four of that. Trade. Sorry, one more time. Take us through that. So techno of the small and mid-cap technology. Consumer discretionary, industrials, and materials yep. is number four, not energy. Fascinating. Okay. So, so interesting. So tell us what you think about, again, this seems to be another conversation in the market. Well, we may just have to get used to a world where rates are between two and five percent. You know, that that and so I guess maybe well, your thoughts on that. It seems like you know, a pretty big range, but maybe that's that's what we do. Yes, and I don't think that that would be a bad thing at all. Um, and when you look historically, the range is wide to the acceptable situations for the market. And again, the reason why the range can be wide is because there are other variables that matter more than those rates and inflation, which is growth. So what might not matter right now as we sit and we'll see how this all plays out in 2023 is, look, if earnings recover and the LEIs recover and residential investment recovers and GDP recovers, all of these things can offset any of those wide ranges. If we bounce in between like two back to, let's, I mean, maybe not five because it's higher than four and a half, which is statistically, you know, the top quartile. But let's just say two to four and a half. If you say that, hey, we're going to end up at the higher range of that, well, that's all fine and well, as long as we see this resurgence and growth in all of those areas that I'm talking about. It may be a very different story in 18 months when earnings growth has peaked, the LEI is back at the, um, at the tops or at the you know, top quartile of its range, and all of a sudden the risk reward has changed for the market. So I do think that as much as most investors think about all of the things that can go wrong and then assign probabilities to them and then discount it back on what will happen to the market. I don't do any of that. I really focus because I have no idea what's going to happen. I really focus on what the market is discounting and what the base case is. And to the extent that the base case ensues, meaning growth actually recovers, then what does that lead in the market suggestive of more upside or downside? And I still see that upside risk. That isn't to say that it will always be the case, no matter what the interest rate is. But right now we're in that sweet spot where growth matters a lot. And what I see historically is growth, you know, higher rates and higher inflation even may be a reflection of that growth, not a deterrent to it. That's so interesting. So so take us through at the beginning, based on what you just said there, may, maybe this is less important, but I was going to ask you, when you started out, you discussed rates and, and you know the element of being a blunt tool, and then the many different types of inflation that it you know sometimes can fight and sometimes it can't. But just to dig into those many different types of inflation and particularly getting a handle on sort of the housing story and, and the labor market. I mean, there's a lot of economists swirling around right now who will just say, just keep your eyes on the labor market. So I just wanted to kind of bring it back to that. Yeah, I get the theory, right? I have a degree in economics. I understand that the laws of supply and demand should relate 
meaning that if there is a limited supply of labor, then prices should rise. If we are measuring that limited supply using the unemployment rate, and if we are measuring that wage increase by you know, the average hourly earnings data that we have going back to 1980, I cannot correlate those two things. And even when I look at our current unemployment rate at three and a half, when I look at the average wage growth you see at three and a half, it's below our average wage growth that we currently have. So again, I get the theory, I get the Phillips curve, I get the beverage curve. I think that they're great theories, but I don't think that they actually explain the data. So if you ask me what you would watch for inflation, it would not be the jobs market. And in some ways, I'm not rooting for a negative payroll print to suggest that that would make the Fed less likely to raise interest rates. I think that you always want the employment in a healthy, if not slowing, but a healthy situation for the equity market to actually have the best risk reward. So for me, the, the big area is not the, the, um, the labor market to watch in terms of the stickiness. I know that there are isolated incidents. And yes, maybe you can correlate it to specifically part of services. But then I think you ignore goods. I mean, why would you, if you were a central bank, completely ignore 55% of the price basket? And then even probably more than that, because shelter is not a function of the labor market at all. And in some ways, you can already make the argument that because mortgage rates are so high, it's restricting supply, which is causing the price increases that the Fed is trying to avoid. So are they, a, are they the cause of inflation or are they the, you know, the, the determiner? the decline in inflation. And I think that's tricky. And that's why it's I find inflation very tricky topic. Which measure, what would you like to look at? I sort of ignore the whole thing and just say, really, it's the intersection of inflation and wages that has mattered historically to the market. Because inflation, high inflation is going to matter a lot less if my wage growth is going to grow in advance of that inflation, which actually did happen in the 70s and 80s when we had inflation and when unemployment wasn't going up and didn't happen in 2022, right? We didn't have any job losses, but wage growth did not keep up with inflation. That was sort of the problem. Now we're finally back in the situation where inflation has decelerated as much you know, to uh, let's call it the 3% level, where you actually have positive real wage growth for the first time. And I think that that's, that's been substantially meaningful to the stock market, even if this pace will not be sustained and inflation reaccelerates a, lot, a, a little bit. So what you see is that, again, just going back to the math, and I'm not going to worry about the idiosyncrasies of inflation and the idiosyncrasies of wage growth. I'm going to worry about what has been predictive to the overall market, and that's real wage growth right now that's in a pretty good position and provides you a pretty good risk reward of that base case earnings and GDP recovery that I think is the historical pattern that most of the data that I'm seeing supports or is pointing towards. So I noticed in, in your top sectors, you did not necessarily say, you didn't say financials. And I just wanted to sort of get a sense of where stress from interest rates being higher is being felt. Is it banking? Maybe many are, are making wages. And so consumer discretionary, as you described, is sort of managing through. We can still look at that. D does some of the stress fall on the banking sector if it's falling anywhere? Some of it certainly does, right? So you can look at the negative yield curve and you can say, that you know banks borrow short and lend long, and that's going to be a problem for bank lending and profitability. And that is true in theory, but the problem is deposit rates at banks are still you know well below two percent. 
Right. So they are still able to borrow. Now you can say that there are segments that are less able to borrow now than they were a year ago after the banking crisis, not small and mid cap banks. And you can say maybe it will get worse over time. But, um, you know, if you sort of inserted the deposit rate on average in that yield curve calculation, it's still actually positive. So is it le a less profitable situation for the banking system of the United States now than it was a year ago? Absolutely. Does that mean that it can't be worked through? Very much less clear to me in terms of those deposit rates that really aren't moving a lot and or very quickly. And then when you look at the consumer who's basically funding these low deposit rates and they're saying, that's OK with me, the consumer is still in a pretty good position. So when you look at even average, and even median levels, they have you know record net worth, record savings. Yeah, sure, it's diminishing and savings are running out, but and still record incomes and now better than average real income. Denise, you know, you've turned around exactly sort of where the bears are taking us in some of these narratives. And I'm, I'm so grateful to kind of have you help us through what sort of looking at what you are actually able to measure. You are always setting us straight. Thank you. I'm always happy to help, Pamela. Thanks for joining us. Have a good day. I'm Pamela Ritchie. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash howtobuy for more information. On fidelity.ca, you can also find more information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.